if myself and my community at this moment in time in 2021, if we have to walk down the street and cop some shit from someone so that in 10 years time, my niece doesn't have to, that's fine. Throw the stones at us. Luckily, I have a really great support system around me. We have to get to a point where me walking down the street in a dress causes no commotion. Absolutely. So hopefully the more we see Harry Styles in a dress, little Nas X in a dress, this person in a dress, whatever, it will just become normal. Life gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons, into lemonade. Because we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. There have been two life-defining moments in Denny Todorovic's life. The first, when they came out as gay to their deeply religious family as a teen. The second, when they came out for a second time as non-binary just last year. Each time, a major period of upheaval and readjustment. Some very dark moments, then a new path forward. Emboldened by Denny's commitment to always be true to themselves. Now Denny is at the helm of a movement for inclusivity, paving a path of belonging as the role model they needed not too long ago. This chat truly nourished my soul. I was not a high for the rest of the day. I think everyone can take away something unique from this conversation. I hope you love it just as much as I did. Here's Denny. Denny, welcome to the Lemonade Podcast. It is such a thrill to have you on. I'm so excited you said yes. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I love your hair. It looks incredible. I cannot believe huh. you're in Geelong. I'm mm. in Melbourne. I mean, yeah. I mean, in the west of Melbourne as well. So I'm 50 yeah. minutes away from you and I saw you getting your hair done and I'm just like, <laughs> I know. I've got to say every time there is a regional metro um, divide, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> I really, I really feel it. And I, I get the guilt. I must say, I kind oh. of, I know I do. And I, and I really, I'm very aware of like what I share on socials. And then quite a few people in Melbourne have said to me, no, 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 like, please don't feel guilty. You give us hope. Like regional gives Metro hope. So please just show us living your normal life. Absolutely. Um, but I will say I went to get my hair done and was so anxious. I've social anxiety. Yeah. Bad. I've, I've, really really struggled with it actually over the last two years every time we get out of lockdown mm. I sort of I edge my way into the world slowly yeah for me I remember last year when we got out of that four months whatever it was endless yeah. lockdown and yeah. I did my first picnic and after a few hours there I was just like socially depleted I was like I just yeah. and I went home and had to have a nap because I was so exhausted not used to social interaction so I guess we have that to look forward to, being anxious at the hairdresser and exhausted. I know. <laughs> oh, um, I survive on naps alone. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, nap city over here. Yeah, seriously, me too. All right, Denny, with all my interviews, I love to start right at the start. So sure. with you, I'd love to go right back to the beginning, please. Can mm. you tell me what childhood was like for you? What do you remember? Yeah, sure. So I had a pretty, like, idyllic childhood. I grew up in Geelong, which is where I'm, I'm recording from today. 
I have a younger brother. My parents were immigrants. So my mum moved to Australia when she was 16 and my dad when he was 21. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was always surrounded by, you know, a vast amount of multi-culture vibes, whether that was from my family, from our friends. Um, I remember my dad, he worked on a, like a potato picking farm um, which was run by an Italian family. So there was just always a whole lot of ethnic people around, yeah. very loud, very colourful, <laughs> joyful, lots of music, lots of food. That was kind of my earliest memories. And um, primary school was, you know, not a great start into the outside world. I was, I started primary school a year younger. I was four when I started primary school because I was quite articulate and could read and write. So I sort of passed an aptitude test and got in. So from quite a young age, I was pretty exposed to bullying and and Geelong is a, you know, pretty regional part of the world. I mean, it's actually quite a big city, but it has a very small town mentality. So at that time, you know, firstly, as, you know, an ethnic person at a very white school, that was challenging. Secondly, as someone who, you know, danced around to Kylie Minogue instead of playing the footy, that was quite challenging as well. But I will say for the most part, home was my safe haven. And I knew that no matter how much I got bullied at school, I could come home and be free to, you know, dance in front of the tally to Madonna. My mum was actually saying just the other night that when I was little, the only thing that would calm me down would be, she used to record video hits and rage for me. Yes, I watched those too. Yeah. And she, she would just, yeah, she would just pop on the VHS of music videos. And that's the only thing that would, um, you know, keep me quiet and keep me entertained as a kid. Oh, I love that so much. And you've spoken about very openly in the research I've done on you about these moments when you were young that you felt different and you didn't feel included mm. or you didn't feel like you fat, you fit into that mould that school or society was expecting you to be. But mm. being so young, you wouldn't have had the language to articulate why or what that meant. Can no. you talk us through some of those defining moments, I suppose, where you thought, oh, this just isn't... Mm me or this isn't what I, this isn't how I feel or what I want to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was four years old or four and a half, I had my first crush on a boy. And, you know, as a four and a half year old, when you have uh, a male, female family and you have predominantly, if not exclusively, actually male, female relationships around you, you're kind of like, there's this internal voice that goes, wait a second no one else likes, no other boys like Mm. boys. And I can't see any other girls that like girls around me. So something must be not quite right with you, Denny. So you kind of suppress that a lot and you're you're really scared to to say it out loud. And when you do say it out loud, it's kind of laughed off or not taken Mm. very seriously. So they were probably the earliest moments of me realising that my sexuality was not straight in terms of my gender identity, that's a little bit more layered because I knew from an, from as early as three, I have a weirdly photographic memory. Um, I knew from that young that I was not a boy, but I also wasn't a girl. And the older I got, the more I realized that, well, actually I had no desire to sort of, you know, um, transition or be, you know, become a girl as I would have said probably early in that age. Um, I just, chalk that off to the fact that I was always going to be a very effeminate, very camp kind of boy. And I didn't have any language to articulate what that might look like, like certainly not that young anyway. So yeah, there were always those feelings of real, um, 
othering and and that was they were feelings that were inflicted on me by society but also feelings that I very much had internally because I also grew up in a very religious family so you know religion kind of 101 is you know Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve and it's like there's only two genders and so it's very rigid so yeah it was pretty hard to navigate and quite traumatizing in many ways yeah I'm interested in that because we have that this innate need as humans to want to fit in, to not want to stand out too much, especially when we're children. How does a realisation like that, that you're not identifying with how society thinks a young boy should be, how does that feel internally, I suppose? It's a daily, especially as you get older. So by the time I reached grade six and then high school, it is a daily battle of self-loathing it's a daily battle of you know constant um like closeting you know I I often understand why we have that metaphor of like being in the closet because you're constantly pushing back a feeling or you're you know you're seeing something on tv um two guys for example that might you find like a little attraction you get a boner, whatever. And then you instantly feel guilty about it. And you find, as a religious person, you find yourself laying in bed at night, praying for God to forgive your sins and how disgusting and dirty you are. So it, for me, it was really tricky to navigate because I just felt like the more I ignored it and the more I repressed it, it would go away, except mm. that it obviously never goes away. So well, it didn't in my case. It's, it's a tricky one. And then you add on top of that the layer of, the kids at school and, um, you know, kids having these like formative moments, these coming of age moments, their first kisses, their first boyfriends and girlfriends, whatever. And you just don't have any of that. Well, I didn't anyway. So you're constantly comparing yourself. You're constantly being picked on for the things that you fear most about yourself. It's a bit mm-hmm. of a head fuck, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. And constantly being reminded, I suppose, of that otherness, as you put it mm-hmm. before. That I can't, that must just be made high school just torturous. And you came out to your family as gay when you were 19. I think it was 19. Yeah. I read. Can you take us back to the, that day and talk mm-hmm. us through the aftermath that unfolded after that? Yeah. So I had been pretty sort of not sexually active whatsoever. Up until I was 19, I didn't even kiss anyone up until I was 19. So on my 19th birthday, I kissed a girl for the first time and I didn't like it, Katie Perry. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I didn't hate it, but it wasn't, I don't know. And then Not for me. Weeks, <laughs> not for me. And then three weeks later, I kissed a boy for the first time and that changed everything. And then that boy would go on to be the first boy that I slept with. And it all happened in a very quick period of time. And... I came out to like probably three or four friends and I mean, they, their reactions weren't great. My best friend, Christy was really great about it, but everyone else that I came out to was pretty not great about it. So I was like, Oh shit. So I kind of ignored my parents for two weeks. We're very close. We have dinner together as a family every night. So I would just ignore them. As soon as dinner time would come up, I'd jump in the car go visit a friend, whatever. So one night my mum just said to me, like, Denny, it's been three weeks. You haven't had dinner. Like what's going on? Stay home for dinner. And I said, no, no, I've got to go. And she was like, why do you keep ignoring us? And I just started crying Mm. like uncontrollably in the kitchen. And my brother came up to me and he was like, Denny, are you gay? 
he just instinctively knew to ask that question. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, Michael, I am. And my mum just froze. And in an instant, she kind of went into like fight or flight. And she was like, this is a problem. We can fix it. It's all good. It's all good. Like, it's just a phase. Like, it's all good. We can fix this. Um, And then my dad came downstairs. He was upstairs sleeping. And then he kind of, he was beautiful in that he just wanted to understand how I felt. And he sort of said things, you know, like, just explain it to me. Like, you've never had sex with a girl. So how can you be so sure? And, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then I just kind of flipped it back on him. And I said, well, dad, you've never had sex with a man. So how can you be sure that you're straight? You know, and suddenly the penny dropped. But it took the aftermath. It took about three to four months for them to really wrap their heads around it, especially my mum. My mum really struggled with it. She was really fearful for what my life would look like. Um, you know, would I catch HIV because that was all she knew? Would I be single forever? Would I not get married and give her the grandchildren that she's always dreamed of? It's kind of like suddenly you're destroying all of their dreams as well. So it's quite, um, it's quite a lot to unpack. Absolutely. And that, that heaviness to carry in just stepping into your truth, knowing what that will do mm. to the people that you love the most in that moment. What I find so intriguing is the, this beautiful bond that you have with your mum. And yeah. I've, I love hearing you speak about her and read what you say about her. But she, as you said, she did take it the hardest. Um, how did, what, what happened in those months afterwards and how did it, I guess, come full circle and she mm. come to accept it? Yeah, so uh, shortly after I came out, they sort of said to me, well, you know, like, why wouldn't you at least try to date a girl first? So I did. I actually dated a girl for about six weeks. And I say date very loosely because I was still fucking that guy, to be completely honest with you. (laughs) So, and and this girl knew that. She knew that. Yeah. So, and she was very supportive of it. So it got to a point where she said to me one night, well, if you just want me to be like your beard, let's just tell your parents that we're together. And you can, you know, fuck whoever you want, basically. And I was like, that's really beautiful of you, but I can't do that to you. So I came home and I said to mum and dad, and this was probably about a month after, I said, listen, I tried it your way. It didn't work. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. Like, if you want me to move out, I'll move out. And my mum was like, okay, well, if this is how you are, then fine. Very begrudgingly. She was like, but we don't want to know anything about boys. You can't bring boys over. Like, that's a no-go zone. So then I started actually dating a boy, maybe like four months um, after initially coming out. And when we started dating together, like I will always be grateful to him because I think he showed my parents that actually I could be happy and that I could experience love. And when we first started dating, they didn't know because they didn't want to know. So eventually, you know, they, I told them and eventually he came over and when he, when they saw him and they saw us together, And they saw how happy he made me. My mum was like, okay. And I remember they sat him down and they said, listen, Ben, this is nothing to do with you. We're not angry or or unaccepting of you. This is just something that's going to take us some time to wrap our heads around. And I think also it probably helped that Ben was very much the opposite of me. And what I mean by that is, you know, he was incredibly like sort of masculine boy next door. My dad could chat to him about the footy and about cars and whatever. So he was probably like the ideal boyfriend to sort of break my parents into the gay world in a way. Um, So yeah, it took about six months by about seven, you know, eight months. Ben was just a part of my family. I was gay, you know, it was still hard. 
We had to, of course, come out to all of our relatives. So like that was a whole thing coming out to my grandmother and uncles and aunties and the big Wog family. Oh like, my God. It was quite, you know, quite it's full never on. ending. <laughs> never, never ending. And it's so, it's so interesting because I just think back to my childhood, like teen life. There was never these moments of having to just constantly reveal your most personal, intimate life to everyone yeah. over and over and over again. It just wasn't even on the table to speak about. So I can't imagine just always having to constantly justify yourself, I suppose, and put yourself yeah. out there in such vulnerable positions at such a young age too. Yeah. I mean, queer people, I would argue, would like have to come out almost on a daily basis, yeah. whether it's, you know, I remember specifically having to come out to my first boss in my first like office job. Yeah. Um, you know, your employers, your colleagues, um, you know, I have so many mates that, you know, will work in a job and, you know, three months down the line, someone will say to them, oh, you know, how's your girlfriend? Because they will just use, say, the word partner. And then they have to sit them down and be like, well, actually, it's a boy, you know? Mm. So it's like this constant having to come out. And it can be pretty exhausting um, in many ways. And it does often make me think, like, straight people never have to do that. Ever. Never. It's <laughs> never even... It's not until I've spoken to you now that penny dropped. I'm like, I've never had to have this, such mm. frank conversations about mm. my personal life with people that don't... It's not really their business either, as you said, that your boss. You've spoken about in... Um, the, uh, you know, after you spoke to your family and had these conversations, it did get quite dark for you for a little oh, yeah. while there. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the initial two-week period after I came out, my mum was pretty, oh, like, I just remember her crying a lot. I remember her not sleeping upstairs a lot. She would just, like, sleep on the couch. And I would get up and go to work, and I worked in a call centre at the time, which is not a great job for your mental health anyway. So, you know, and I, so what I remember was at my call center job, there was a girl there who was like a Christian and she gave me this CD to listen to about someone at her church who had come out and then like they prayed the gay away. Oh my she was God. Like, you know, yeah. She was like, this might help you. Oh. And I, and I remember listening to it in the car and just crying. And I remember on my drive home, I used to drive sort of over this, um, bridge and then underneath the bridge was like a big kind of just gaping land basically like kind of bush vibes and I remember thinking god life would be so much easier if I just drove off this bridge and just you know or, or maybe a truck would swipe me on the way to work tomorrow like that might be easier so it was a very very dark time very Absolutely. And when the dust did settle and you, as you said, like your family came around to it and they liked your boyfriend, how did it feel, I guess, living in this truth finally and getting to finally be you? My gosh, it's, it was the best. Even before the boyfriend came along, I remember it was like little things like being able to say that, you know, a footy player was hot when I would watch yes. the footy with my, my brother and my dad, you know, being able to go to a bar and like make eyes with a boy or going to a, I'll never forget going to, to a gay bar for the first time in my life and being like, oh, I'm not alone. This yes. is amazing. Like I'm not the only one. So it just becomes this burden that you've carried, you know, for 19 years, suddenly that burden is gone. And, and then you have obstacles that you have to cross, but you feel so much freer. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. That must yeah. be the most liberating thing. And then it is. you did become a super successful fashion stylist and worked all over the world. Can you tell us a little bit about this side of your life? Because I just mm. find that so yeah. cool. <laughs> 
course. So fashion, I always say is, you know, fashion was my best friend growing up because I didn't have a ton of friends. I wasn't the popular kid at school. And ever since I was about four, I had um, this just like love affair with fashion. I had cousins who were dressmakers. My mum was very into style in every capacity. So it was just very innately a part of my everyday life. I would be obsessed with, you know, watching my family get ready and do their makeup and all the aunties showing up to weddings in dresses. Like that would just like, oh, it was like porn to me. (laughs) And, And I just loved it so much. And then when I was in high school, I discovered that fashion could actually be like a viable career. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, so I did a course at like our local TAFE um, in fashion and sort of clothing design. So I learned how to sew. And then when I was 18, <clears throat> pardon me, I sort of was deciding whether or not to go to uni and uni was just not going to be the path for me. That's just not how I am. Mm. So I decided to do a summer course abroad and I studied fashion in Paris, which is, you know, oh the, my God. the best place to study fashion <laughs> ever. It's the best sentence ever. I studied fashion in Paris. (laughs) Pretty great. Pretty great. So I did that and came home and then got my first job at Maya in the buying office as an assistant buyer. Had no idea what I was doing, but had an amazing boss. And then a year into that, I moved to London with my boyfriend at the time. And uh, we broke up like three months into being in London, but it was the best two years of my life because... it actually started to pave the way for me to find myself and find my feet. And I just threw myself into work. So I interned all over London at every magazine and PR agency and, you know, got some incredible opportunities that I will ever be grateful for. And then when I came home, I was 24, 23, I started to think about what the next steps of my career would be. And at the time, blogging was quite a thing. Yep. So I started a blog and I called it Style by Denny and that was great. It was like a video blog was all about fashion. I sort of um, would stay in Geelong, work at a cafe, save a bunch of money, go overseas, report on like the fashion weeks in like New York and Paris, come home and then do it again the following season. But I wasn't making any money. So very quickly, my parents were like, look, this is all really cute and everything. And <laughs> you're, you're very good at what you do. This content is great. But like, you know, you got to pay the rent kind of thing. So I decided to move to Sydney mm. and just follow my dreams of actually pursuing my, my magazine dream job because I worked at um, Cosmo, Vogue and InStyle in London. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, I, you know, I've got some skills. I've got a little bit of um, knowledge at my belt. Let's see if I can translate that to Australia. So I moved to Sydney with my second par- uh, partner and he and I sort of just packed our bags, moved to Sydney and I got an internship at Cosmo and I was there for seven months as an intern. And then I got a job and then I was there for five years. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I'd love to hear about how, I guess this side as well, as you said, this, this career and these steps helped Mm -hmm. you find your feet to eventually who you really are today as well. Mm. How did exploring this side of you in fashion and dressing up and I guess embracing this feminine side, um, Mm. how did your career help, facilitate that in a way that perhaps if you had mm. ever gone into that line of work, I know the process might, might've been longer. So true. You know, I think fashion at its core when it's, when it's done best and when you kind of break it down, it's all about self-expression. It's all about, mm. you know, speaking without opening your mouth. So when you live and breathe and work in a world that celebrates fashion, I mean, Cosmo is, you know, a great example of that in that, 
Cosmo isn't like a fashion or wasn't a fashion magazine, but it was a magazine where the environment that we had in that office was so safe. You could go to work in a fucking ball gown and no one would bat an eyelid and they would like cheer you on. So I think more so than even, I mean, of course the fashion industry played a huge role on my own self-discovery because, because it was this like best friend that I had, I felt like it was the perfect tool to explore. However, it was the safe space that Cosmo provided and that team provided that I actually had the ability to explore because had I worked at Vogue or Harper's or, you know, a bit more of a sort of stiff upper lip title, I don't think I would have had that safe space. So Cosmo was the perfect space for me to just chuck on a pair of boots that came into the fashion cupboard and, you know, swan around the office in them. And then this also intersected with me now in my third relationship, um, very much being a huge part of the gay community in Sydney because prior to my most recent relationship, I'd not really had many gay friends. So it was like the combination of working at Cosmo and just like throwing myself into the queer community of Sydney that really facilitated this like beginning of my self-expression, which would then take me to my own like gender journey. If that makes mm, sense. Yeah, absolutely. And then la- that culminated in last year. Um, I think the, mm-hmm. every, the world was starting to shut down. So everything just felt very scary mm-hmm. at that time, but that's when everything changed for you again. And you were introduced mm. to the term non-binary. What happened then? Can you talk us through that time? Yeah, yeah sure. So I, the first time I ever heard the word non-binary was when I was working at Cosmo. There was a TV show called Younger um, on Stan and Nico Tortorella, who's one of the main characters in that show, is non-binary. And their character on the show is like hyper-masculine, like the guy everyone wants to be with kind of thing. And I remember saying like, he's hot. And someone said to me, no, no, they're hot. And I was like, oh, what do you mean by, you know, I had no idea what they, them pronouns even were. So I did a bit of research and I sort of kind of came across this and I was like, oh, okay. And then I sort of left it. And then uh, maybe like a month later, I got an email from someone at Cosmo, like someone that we were working with externally and they had they, them in their signature. And I was like, oh, there's that thing again. But I left it again because I'm a massive, I avoid and disassociate my feelings when I can't deal with them. And I just bottle them away, which is what I did with being gay. So I just bottled it away. And then when I came home three years ago after Cosmo folded, the term non-binary started to creep up everywhere. So Sam Smith came out as non-binary and I'm a huge fan of theirs. So, you know, that was a massive light bulb moment for me. Courtney Act then comes out as non-binary, another light bulb moment for me. And then just before we went into lockdown, I met a non-binary person. And when you have someone in front of you, that speaks your truth. It's, I can't even explain it in words. It's like when you're a kid and you see a gay person for the first time in your life, you're like, oh my God, that's me. So meeting that person was really um, the final penny drop moment. So when we went into lockdown and we had all this time on our hands, I could no longer ignore how I felt. And I just threw myself into research and a lot of therapy and sort of deep diving and and trying to unpack my own emotions. And then I was like, okay, you have to just sit with this and you have to come out all over again. Oh my God. I I couldn't not. Yeah. You had to do it all over again. And what was that like? And I've seen you call it the second time coming out to your family. What was that like? Much harder than the first for different reasons. So when I came out as gay, uh, 
it was like 2007, I think. So, you know, there were TV shows like Will and Grace that my parents really loved. Um, Ellen DeGeneres was rating, like top of the ratings at the time. So they had people that they could reference with being gay. When I came out as non-binary, the only thing that my parents knew to be remotely transgender was Caitlyn Jenner because we loved the Kardashians. So, but that's a very like binary, um, you know, gender journey because Caitlyn, you know, was Bruce. And then, well, they were always Caitlyn, but you know what I mean? They went yeah. from Bruce to Caitlyn in my parents' eyes. So when I came out as non-binary, my parents were so confused. They were like, wait, do you want to be a girl? Why don't you just, you know, they would have actually preferred me to just say I'm transitioning. I'm having gender reassignment surgery, the whole thing. They would have preferred that. They were so perplexed by this non-binary thing. It made no sense to them. It made them quite angry. And then suddenly again, my mum had all the same fears that she had, you know, 12 years prior. Will anyone love you? Um, Are you going to be safe? What does your life look like? What do I call you now? You know, you're my son. It's like a grieving process for them. It's like parents of trans youth really do go through a process of grief and mourning. You know, it's, it's very, very much that. Absolutely. So it was really, really hard. And then that would be like the second time that, you know, I had these really deep, dark, intrusive thoughts of maybe it would just be easier if I wasn't here. And was it the similar kind of stage, as you said, there was that mourning period. Did that last again? Like, you know, for a few months of your family getting their head around yeah. it. and Yeah. So I came out to my best friend three months before I came out to my parents. And then I came out to the, rest of my best friends like shortly after that so I gave my parents a good about two months before I would come out on socials so I I said nothing on socials and in the meantime was just letting them process what was happening I was processing what was still happening you know we were all kind of trying to figure it out but in the meantime people on socials would just ask me in my comments like what are your pronouns Okay. Um, you know, how do you identify? Because they could see a shift in the way that I was presenting and my extended family, um, you know, because there was a few little uh, gaps of lockdowns where we could like go out for dinner and whatever. Mm. And my, my um, cousins would say to me, Denny, are you trans? And you know, like, what's that story like? So then I would have to come out to them and explain to them what being non-binary meant. And so it, it took about three months yeah. for mum and, and they- dad to really wrap their heads around it. Well, absolutely. Because I even just think about in the last year and a half, like back early last year, that's when it all started coming out. You know, people started speaking about it more and understanding it more. And it really has, I feel like even, what is it, October 2021, maybe if it it, it had happened now, people would understand so much more in just that short amount of time because it seems to be um, such a discussion now. Changing your pronouns today then, why was that? You know, why? how did that feel to you as if you were standing in even more of your truth than you ever had? So I was really reluctant to change my pronouns. I was like, I'm not changing my pronouns because of my own internalized transphobia. Mm. Um, you know, people of minority groups often have these internalized like feelings of self-loathing. So when I came out as non-binary, I was like, yeah, but I'm still masculine. I worked really hard for my masculinity. I'm not going to get rid of that. And I mean, you know, if I know, if I knew then what I know now, being non-binary doesn't mean you have to stop being masculine suddenly. So I was really reluctant to change my pronouns. I was also quite wary of what that would feel like for my parents and my 
brother and you know my family like how would that impact them it also really played on my mind as to how that would impact my own dating and sex life because the gay world can be pretty savage at the best of times and I had finally found myself in a place where I was really comfortable with my sexuality, super comfortable, just like sexually in general. So I was like, Oh great. Am I going to have to take like 20 steps backwards? Mm. And then it all came down to one minute, one like mundane minute where I was filling out a survey online and it said it had a drop down box and it said male, female or other. And I was like, other, like, yeah, no question. No question. And then suddenly I was like, oh shit, you really shouldn't have he, him pronouns. It makes no sense. It's not who you are. And as soon as I changed my pronouns to they, them, oh my God, it's just, it was like someone turned the light switch on. Wow. And if, yeah. yeah, And it's just, it must be like that feeling that you felt when you were younger and came out as gay. And then this, this must just be like that times a million, I suppose, because it, it is a more accurate description of who you were, who you are yeah. rather than back then as well. You are so vocal standing up for the queer and non-binary communities through social media and all the speaking that you do. Thank Why you. is it important for you to speak about these experiences so openly and with such candor, like you do, you're so honest and you're so, yeah, you're so honest and transparent with everything you're saying. Why is this important for you? Well, I think that, you know, history would prove that there has to be people that give a voice to the voiceless. You know, there has to be those people that break the glass ceiling because if you can't see yourself, you can't really be yourself. And I very well could not have been myself had I not had, you know, that person emailing me at Cosmo, Nico Tortorella on Younger, Sam Smith, Courtney Act, meeting the non-binary person, like all of that. Had all those people not shown up, would I have gotten to where I got? Like it probably would have taken another six months or seven months or who knows. So my whole sort of mission, I guess, is to just speak my truth in hopes that it might resonate with even one person. Because if that can make their life somewhat easier and more authentic and, and less, you know, to feel less trapped and feel more free, then that makes me a happy human because it's like, that's the whole moral of life to me that the whole mission of life is to lead with empathy and, you know, to treat others as as if you would treat yourself. I still very much live in, in many ways by some of the religious principles that I learned growing up, you know, like Jesus always said, you, you know, you treat your neighbor the way you treat yourself. And if I'm, if I can do that and exist in that way, then I'm a happy person. And I think the only way you can do that is by speaking up. Right. Absolutely. And does that then make everything, you know, the hardest moments you've been through and there's been a few, I guess, Mm. worth it in that way to know that you're showing up for a a younger version of you that Mm. exists right now? Yeah, absolutely. I always think that, you know, if I can, if myself and my community at this moment in time in 2021, if we have to walk down the street and cop some shit from someone, so that in 10 years time, my niece doesn't have to, that's fine. Like throw the stones at us. We'll be fine. Luckily I have a really great support system around me. We have to get to a point where me walking down the street in a dress causes no commotion, like none, because 
it, again, it's, it's that simple. If you can't see these people in the world, then other people can't be, be themselves. So my whole theory is it's like, here's a fashion example for you. When I was in school and when skinny jeans first came out, and boys started wearing skinny jeans. Everyone was like, oh, faggot, 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 faggot. And then suddenly skinny jeans for boys is like the only kind of jean that, you know, men wear now because it became so normal. Absolutely. So hopefully the more we see Harry Styles in a dress, Lil Nas X in a dress, this person in a dress, whatever, it will just become normal. Oh, I had all the chills as you were saying that and all the goosebumps. It was so powerful. You've spoken about as well as that people in these communities are at such a high rate of taking their own lives as well or mm. attempting to to do that as well. What can we be doing as society to fix this this tragedy? What's going on in these communities? Yeah, it's kind of, in many ways, it's a bit of like a top-down scenario in that it really needs to come from the top. And it needs to come from our governments and our healthcare systems and, you know, the law. But also we could never, I could never tell you like how much you shouldn't underestimate the power of your own allyship and your own voice. And for me, that starts in, in our homes. You know, if we are true allies, it's self-educating, mm. educating those around us, you know, holding people to account doing better, rewiring our own language and the way that we perceive people, the way that we just gender people. And and there's so many different ways that you can do that. So I think that, you know, in the last couple of years, we've learned so much about what it means to stand by our Indigenous community in Australia or, you know, the Black people globally, Asian hate, all of it, anti-Semitism. Like, we've learned what it means to self-educate, do better, be vocal, show up and stand next to our siblings of the human race. The same applies to the queer community. You know, when you think that not so long ago this country voted for our rights to get married, blows my mind. Oh, seriously. How far have we come since then? You know, you I know, don't feel like it would even be a debate these days, you know? Oh, <laughs> uh, I would hope not. But honestly, uh, sometimes the faith mm. I have in our government is not, it's not great. But I have faith in the people. I have mm. faith in the people. And when I see now, um, you know, I just actually, just before we got on the phone, I saw an email from um, one of my management and I noticed that she has her pronouns in her bio and she probably did that months ago, like, because we've been working together for a while, but I'd never noticed it before. And my whole heart swelled up Aww. because I was just like, that thing, like, and she had no idea about this conversation until we started working together. So, you know, for her as like a 26 year old, you know, woman um, to be able to do such minor, make these minor changes, have conversations with her parents at the dinner table, you know, inform her boyfriend of this, inform their netball coach of it. You know, it's a, it's a domino effect. Yes, absolutely. A, and just makes ripple it ripple effect. Yeah. And just makes it a normal part of the fabric of life. As you said, I'm the mother of a five-year-old boy. Um, Amazing. And he, yes. And he, I'm so passionate about teaching him inclusiveness and mm. opening his horizons. And as you said, because I'm so, I'm so passionate about one day, like you said about your niece, he'll be walking down the street and things, a man in a dress or, or someone that might identify as non-binary in a dress. It's just not even a big deal. You don't even mm. notice. And I, I'm so, I hope that's his future. What can we be doing and mothers and mm. I guess schools and kindergartens to teach inclusiveness for these mm. younger generations who are the future? 
Yeah. I mean, I have so many little kids around me. I have, uh, you know, a six-year-old niece, a couple of nephews who are around seven and five, and then like an 11-month-old niece. Mm. And I look at all of these children and I think, okay, these children are born into the world in such a pure, innocent way. They don't know how to discriminate unless it's taught to them. Yeah. Unless it, unless it's happening around them. So it's like being leading with a huge amount of self-awareness and it can be as simple as diversifying the, the books, the TV shows, the music that your children are consuming on a daily basis. And, you know, it can be as simple as letting your kids choose anything they want in the clothing department at Kmart instead of just taking them Mm -hmm. to the boy section. And, you know, it can be actually really sitting down and teaching them about inclusivity. There are so many incredible books for kids these days. It blows my mind. Um, A girlfriend of mine, her son had his first birthday last year and someone bought him this book, which is like the A to Z of equality. And it's like, it's like, A stands for asexual, B stands for bisexual, like N is for non-binary. And, you know, because there's this constant argument that like kids are too young, kids are too young. Well, they're not too young when you're asking your kindergarten, you know, nephew, or do you have a girlfriend at school? Yeah. So heterosexuality is never too young, but, you know, God forbid we should inflict any kind of queerness to children. So it's really that simple. It's like breaking it down in a way that is, consumable to them because you will you will see that like your kids won't care no they don't (laughs) after after the initial oh mommy why is that boy wearing a dress Mm. so perfect example i have lots of mothers say to me if my kids were to see you in public and they said mommy that boy is wearing a dress what would i say to them Mm. very simple you would just say oh actually yeah isn't that human beautiful and isn't it great that humans can wear whatever they want yeah you know Mm -hmm. people can wear whatever they want um, yeah, it's quite a lengthy conversation, but I feel like it does start with those things. And, and I've seen it work in my own family with my niece who's six, you know, I would come over in a dress, in a skirt with my nails and she would be like, Jenny, why, what's, what's going on? <laughs> and, I, and I'd be like, Ariana, like, you know, I'm, this is, I'm just living my best life. And I was like, wait, how do I show her this in a way that is super subtle? So I showed her this Taylor Swift music video, which has like the queer eye cast, Alan DeGeneres, Todrick Hall, a bunch of queer people. And we just watched it together. Yeah. And halfway through, she was like, oh my God, Denny, these people, they look like you. Yeah. How cool, you know? And it was like that one Taylor Swift music video suddenly normalised it in her eyes. And she'll just go ahead. She'll just carry yeah. on with her life as it's just no big deal. And it's just part yeah. of life, which is the thought of those generations and what it's going to be like. And you even see it on TikTok and things like that. Now I feel like these generation, the teenagers now, things like that are just, even then are just not, you know, not even a huge conversation. It's just part of life, which is just so awesome. Now I finish all my interviews in the exact same way, Denny. And I ask my, my, I ask my talents, what would, what would the Denny now in front of me tell the Denny in their darkest moments? Do you think? Mm, That's a really good question. You know, I think I would say to them that they are worthy and they are of tremendous value and that in the end, it will all be okay. And, you know, if it's not okay, then it's not the end. That was a quote that one of my editors said to me 
when I was going through a breakup and I'll just never forget it because mm. when you're in that moment of darkness, everything seems like Armageddon. It's the end of the world. You can't get yourself out of this hole, but you can and you will. And that's what I would say to them. And I would just say to them that, you know, all of these things that people are snickering at you for staring at you in the street, hurling abuse at you. These are the things that will go on to form you know, the human you are, and they will become the things that people fall in love with you over. They'll become the things that literally end up being your job. So <laughs> just sit tight, honey, because it's going to be a fun, frivolous journey and there'll be light and there'll be shade, but you'll be fine. Oh, love that. What an amazing answer to finish the interview. Thanks, darling. Thank you, Denny. This has been so lovely. Oh my God. I was just, I was thinking during it, I was like, it's 10 a.m. on a Monday morning and I'm asking you your, your deepest, darkest no. question. You're probably uh, like, this is a very deep way to start the week, but I couldn't be is- more appreciative of your candor yeah. and your honesty. It's just, I had all the chills all through you, you speaking. Aww. You're so incredible to chat to. It's been Thank so you. nice to speak to you. And I have to ask you a very superfluous question go that handbag behind <laughs> you i wondered if you'd notice that to be honest is that Givenchy? is that yeah. a bambi oh. yeah because my nickname is bambi so i've been called bam oh since bam or bambi since i was two so it was a gift from my parents years ago um because I, it's quite old now that style yes but, yeah. <laughs> i regret not buying that print so yeah. much i love oh, it so one. much yeah <laughs> your good eye one. is amazing <laughs> <laughs> well it thank you so, so much nice again darling with you. thank see you, you darling. see you bye, bye. Thank you so much for listening to this chat. I'll pop everything you need, all the links in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, I'd love for you to post it on social media and tag me. If not, I'd appreciate it so much if you could hit subscribe, five stars, leave a positive review, any combination of the above really. All of it really helps get the podcast out there. Thanks once again. Chat next time. 